Good evening. It's great to see you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please would your voice be heard loud and clear among us this evening. Would your spirit be at work among us, forming us together to be more like your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, who here this evening would say that they're perfectly content? I like to think I'm fairly content most of the time. But even so, there are moments when that slips, when my contentment is challenged. Other times, I'm just a bit grumpy about one thing or another. My wife, Claire, and I have just got back from a fantastic trip to the States, where last Saturday, my brother got married. Philip and Jackie chose to get married in Phoenix, Arizona, which is beautiful this time of year. And following the the celebrations over the weekend, uh, the whole family, my parents, uh, Philip, Jackie, Claire and me, we did a little road trip, um, which was great fun. But uh, there were moments, um, moments, as you can imagine, with that that group that challenged my contentment. And the most, the sort of biggest moment, I'd say, of of that trip that, that challenged me was um, when we were up staying in the Grand, well, the, the village on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. If you have ever been to the Grand Canyon or read any books about visiting the Grand Canyon, one thing they all say is do not try and hike down to the river at the bottom, the Colorado River, and back up again in one day. Now, if you think about it, the kind of reason is obvious. Normally, if you have a big long hike Um, the climb if there's a climb is at the start so you climb up as far as you can go get to the top of the hill top of the mountain and coming back down is a lot easier but the canyon it's the other way around you can sort of walk down all day very easy get down to the bottom of the river eight miles in a mile deep and then you have to climb back up and out again uh, where it gets hotter and it's hot thirsty hard work there's a sign um, around the place at the top that says hiking down is optional but hiking back out is mandatory. And not everyone, not everyone does it. There's a lot of rescues there each year. So big warning signs, which if you're anything like me, only serves to sort of whet your appetite and lay the gauntlet uh, and sort of put the challenge on your radar. So I've been looking forward to getting to the, the canyon and having a crack at this, um, at this ill-advised challenge. However, things didn't go quite to plan. We arrived last Monday night in a snowstorm. So we arrived sort of after dark in the snow. Uh, things felt a little bit more kind of intrepid uh, than I'd imagined. And we were only there sort of for one full day, which I thought, perfect day for an adventure. But with the snow, with the late arrival, I thought, okay, let's get our bearings and enjoy the beauty of the canyon with the family from the safety of the rim. Well, that was brilliant. Um, but having done that, having sort of got the lay of the land uh, and picked up a pair of crampons. Um, Claire and I set off on Wednesday morning with a half day uh, to walk down into the canyon. And we'd agreed with the family to be back up at 12.30 ready to head on to our next destination. So we had, you know, we're looking at our watches and we set off with our traction devices on our shoes and our hiking poles adjusted so we could march down and back up again as far as we could. And it was idyllic, beautiful, stunning. We had the path to ourselves, we had the crunch of snow under our feet and just the sound of our breathing. Um, 
in our ears. It was incredible. But, of course, at some point we had to turn around and head back up. And it was long before we got right down to the bottom. We negotiated the pair of us. How long could we go? How far deep? Um, and eventually the moment came, about 50 minutes into our sort of two, three hours, um, that we stopped, took a couple of photos, and turned around and headed back up. And that was the hardest moment, I think, of, uh, of that week. Uh, having to turn around, having to say, no, okay, we're not going to go all the way to the bottom uh, and do that feat and be able to come back up and tell the story of how a pair of us um, did the challenge and lived to tell the tale. And what rubbed salt in the wound coming back up was seeing four young men, no, no crampons on their feet, just running shoes, outdoor shoes, uh, you know, running shorts on, T-shirts, running jackets, you know, bottles of water in their hands, just sort of joyfully running down through the snow on their way to the river um, to go down and back up. Uh, I would have loved to have turned around at that point, sort of left my rucksack behind and uh, jogged down with them. But alas, another time. My contentment was tested, knowing that the relationship I had with the other five members of the family was on the line, um, spurred me on to make that decision. And I'm sure you're all a lot more mature than me, but in case it's helpful, we're going to think together about contentment for the next few minutes. We're going to have a, uh, a look at Hebrews 13. We're going to read verses 1 to 8 and focus on verses 5 and 6. Brilliant. Hebrews 13. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who were ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be, be honoured by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So we're going to look at uh, those two verses, five and six, in three parts. First, the exhortation, then the rationale, and finally the upshot for our lives. So first, the exhortation in verse five. The writer to the Hebrews exhorts us, tells us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And he follows with a because, and we'll look at that in a moment. But let's think about the exhortation first. Keeping our lives free from the love of money and being content with our possessions. The two are sides of, two sides of the same coin. If we love money, then we'll never be content. We'll always want that little bit more. And in the same way that we're to show hospitality to strangers and honour marriage, we're to keep our lives free from the love of money. If we love money, if we're not content with what we have, we'll be pursuing money and those things that consume us. And the lie behind those, uh, those things is that if we have them, if we had that bit more in our bank account, if we 
had that thing in our home, if our TV was a bit bigger, then we'd be sorted. We'll have made it. Then, at last, we'll be happy. But Jesus put it like this. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Consider the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told in this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. Imagine the alternative to loving money. Not hating it so much as using it dispassionately as a tool to serve the kingdom. Receiving it as a gift from the Lord to take care of our daily needs as well as for our enjoyment. Being content applies to so many areas, doesn't it? But if you're like me, it's often easier to be more aware of those things that we don't have than those things that we do. Where do we need to practice contentment? In our homes, our diet, our friends, our family, in our hobbies, how much time we have to devote to them and the options available. Or our holidays, how far and how often we're able to travel. Let's pause for a moment to consider those areas, to allow the Holy Spirit into our hearts to search them where the love of money and discontentment might have crept in. Let's just pause for a moment. Let's choose to give those areas to God. Okay, that's the first thing. Be content with what you have. The second thing we're given is the rationale. The rationale we're given for contentment, from freedom, from the love of money, is that God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. The writer to the Hebrews, like Paul and the psalmists and the heroes of the faith, has discovered the secret to contentment. Contentment, peace, wholeness is found in God, in his presence. This promise is found in a few places in the Old Testament. Genesis 28, as Jacob set out to find a wife and wealth, he was told by God, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I'll bring you back to this land. I'll not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And at the end of Deuteronomy, as Moses reassures God's people in the face of his departure, be strong and courageous. 
Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, your enemies. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then at the start of Joshua, as God encourages him as he prepares to take God's people into the promised land, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And what's more, it's not just in the Old Testament. God's promise to be with us is reiterated and underlined in the coming of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit. We're told right at the start of Matthew's Gospel, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Jesus, as he's about to leave his disciples, comforts them with these words, If you love me, keep my commands, and I'll ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jackie Pullinger tells the story of how the Spirit led her to encounter several women in the walled city, Hong Kong, where she's been ministering for uh, about 50 years. Women who were absolutely desperate. One of them had a few children. The whole family slept in this one room, in this one double bed. And that was the room they lived in. Jackie felt so sorry for this family with next to nothing, living in one room, eating the same rice porridge, congee, day in, day out. And wondered how long she could help them, how long she could stay with them. And she asked this mother how she coped. And to her amazement, the mother replied, it's okay, Jackie. When you leave, Jesus comes and sits on the edge of the bed. That's the intimate presence of the Lord that we can all know. We might not see him so clearly, but he's promised his presence and sent his spirit. We know he'll never leave us nor forsake us. God is able to promise in a way that we're almost unable to understand. It would be unwise for us to make such a promise because it's not entirely within our control. But God is not controlled by anything external. His promises stand sure. They rest on him and his character alone. And if we want to see how sure God's promises are, all we need to do is look at the cross. That is how set, how unshakable God's promises are that his own son Jesus would face death for us in all its pain and humiliation. That Jesus would pay our price, the price for our sin, with all its unbearable weight and shame and sorrow. That is how much God meant it when he promised to never leave us or forsake us. So much that he took the initiative, paid our debt, and made a way for us to be reconciled to him, adopted into his family forever. Let's take a moment to pause and dwell on that promise and what it means for us tonight and going into this week.
third part of this sermon is the upshot, what it means for us. We're told to keep our lives free from the love of money and to be content with what we have because God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. So what? So the writer says, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I'll not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? In all that we face, enemies, temptations, trials, inside and out, we can proclaim that we have a helper, the Lord, who has promised never to leave our side. We need not be afraid, for all things are in his hands. We can join with the psalmist and say, our help is found in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. We could practice saying this to ourselves in our quiet times each morning as we reflect on how we're doing and bring the day ahead before God. We might say it as we face those trials, those enemies, like David did before Goliath. We can declare that the Lord is our God, that he is our helper. As we face our fears and insecurities or the trials of a tricky boss or relationship. As we look around and we're bombarded by adverts and clever marketing, by fancy homes and fast cars, we can proclaim like the psalmist that our help comes from the Lord. I wonder too whether we might practice declaring our trust in the Lord out loud together. And I suppose we do that when we sing, when we worship, but I wondered if we might do it as we are out loud um, together this evening. Would you be up for that? Brilliant. Would you stand up with me and, and we'll give it a go? Now I'll count us in on three so we can say it with heart all together. Are you ready? One, two, three. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Amazing. What are we afraid of? this evening? What are the challenges lying ahead of us this week? Let's say it again with confidence. One, two, three. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? What are we concerned that others might do to us? Where are we worried that we've been or will be left or forsaken by God. Let's declare finally, boldly, one more time. One, two, three. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Awesome. You can sit back down. Thank you for joining me. In the face of all the various temptations that assail us, those things that challenge our contentment, that is how we prevail. That's how we overcome. That's how we keep our lives free from the love of money and grow in our contentment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are so good to us. Thank you that you promised never to leave us never to forsake us. And thank you that you're so concerned to keep that promise that you sent your son, Jesus, 
who died for each one of us on the cross and that you've sent your spirit to be with us all so that we might know you with us and for us as our helper each and every day of our lives from now until we meet you face to face. Amen.